0: My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. Guys, thanks again for everything you've done to increase knowledge about this show. Uh, I've had a couple of shares on Facebook. I really appreciate it on Twitter as well. Uh, Just word of mouth has been really helpful too. Guys, keep up the good work. I'm very appreciative of everything you're doing. This has been so much fun to do. I'm actually recording on time today as opposed to I almost forgot to do this <laughs> because my memory is such trash. But I already had the outline ready. We're ready to get things going here. We're going to be discussing today the book of Luke, chapter 4. So we're going to be starting with verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, And I give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him up to to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone and Jesus answered him it is said you shall not put your the lord your god to the test and when the devil had ended every temptation he departed from him until an opportune time here we go with our introduction in this gospel of luke to our main bad guy everyone loves to talk about satan without actually understanding what he's about where did he come from all this mess But before we get to that, we need to figure out a couple of things. That first being, why did Jesus need to separate himself from the world for 40 days before really starting his ministry? And there's a couple answers to this. First one being, he's trying to focus himself before the mission. What fasting is supposed to do is get us in a place where we are removing something from our lives. It could be food. It could be something else that we rely on day by day and just getting away from it, taking time to devote ourselves and our minds to focus on God. And Jesus is doing that as an example to us. Also, at this time, we need to recognize the fact that Jesus is still human at this point. So it is in his nature, the human part of him, to be able to give up food but still suffer from that. And he, like us, is going to need to eat at some point in time. He is doing this to show us it is possible, it is doable. He got no special help during this trial. Also, we see that doing this for 40 days is a way for him to mirror the 40 years Israel was in the desert. Uh, That is from the Exodus period, for those of you not familiar with that. This 40 is kind of one of those numbers that recurs in the Bible, like seven, like three, so on and so forth, and 12 as well as we get to the apostles and beyond and the tribes of Israel. So all this is for Jesus to come and say, I am doing this to get my mind right. But, of course, when we are trying to devote ourselves to what is good, what is righteous, Everything in the world seems like it's going to be working against us. And Jesus literally had Satan himself right there trying to take him down. Now, who is Satan? Well, Satan comes from the Hebrew word Satan, which can just mean any accuser or like an adversary someone is dealing with. So you got someone calling you out, they can be a Satan. Using, however, the definite article ha before the name, turns the name into the Satan. So you'll see in your Hebrew, if you're looking at that, in certain verses in the Bible, say Hasatan. Uh, more than likely you're going to see it in Job before uh, there are other texts as well. But it's the Satan. That's the way to distinguish him as the primary adversary, the primary accuser against humanity versus like a general term for someone who did it. He is a fallen angel who rules over hell, and this world, uh, excuse me. And that last that part I said about ruling over hell, that is hotly debated between scholars. There are some who say that, says that uh, hell itself is always a prison, so if he's there, he's in prison, he can't do anything. There are others who say, well, he's in charge and he can rally the forces against everyone. We're not going to make that blanket statement today, as I just did. I shouldn't have said that; that was my bad. But all that to say is that Satan is a ruler of this world. It is pointed out in other scriptures like he's the prince of the air, he's the king of this world. So it is under his authority to an extent to offer what he does to Jesus later on in this passage. He also is identified later in Scripture, we get it through Paul, we get it through Revelation, uh, specifically in Romans for Paul, as the serpent who was in the Garden of Eden, tempting Adam and Eve to commit the first sin of thinking that they could be just like God. And then that pride, losing themselves, to which we are all fallen at that original sin. We also see throughout the entire Old Testament, like Job, we'll see it in, uh, I believe, Zechariah as well. And Second Chronicles is brought up that Satan will act like an instigator and a rabble rouser working against God's people so that he can incite men like David to sin against God so that they would be punished because all Satan wants is for us to be harmed. He wants to be the ruler of all things. And working against God is one of the ways he does that. Satan is not, and I will say this, he is not God's opposite, his equal opposite. There are way too many forms of false Christianity in this world that equate the two in a duality kind of sense. That's more... Um, Eastern-inspired kind of way of looking at things, you know, more Gnostic way of looking at things sometimes. They're not one and the same. They're not two sides of the same coin. The devil, Satan, is lesser than God. He cannot ever win against God. And he knows that, but he's doing everything in his power because he cannot bring himself to say those words out loud to try and undermine God's authority, which is why he is tempting Jesus right now. Because he if Jesus falls then Satan wins. Satan is then able, there is no one who is capable of saving us from ourselves if Jesus falls to temptation. So Satan knows there's a chance. And you'll get a lot of scholars as well saying, well, oh, Jesus would never do that. And I know Jesus would never do that, but the temptation itself is there. It is possible. Now we see throughout these verses, Satan uses Scripture, to fight against claims Jesus makes with Scripture. I don't know about you, but that is infuriating to me. And it was so the first time I really read this passage as a young adult. I was about 12 or 13, just on my own, finally reading my Bible after so long. And I came across this, and I saw that Satan knew more about the Bible than me. And i got to tell you, that ticked me off. And it's not like today I have the whole Bible memorized. I certainly don't. My memory is not that good to begin with, but I know a lot more than I did then. Because this passage emboldened me, well, if he knows that much, why don't I then go and learn as much as I can so I can fight back with Scripture just like Jesus did? So around that time, 1213, was the first time I read through the entire Bible for the first time. I've since read it uh, 10 times plus over. You know, cover the cover. But it all began with this specific passage. So guys, I cannot stress enough. If you don't know your scripture, don't just use me. Don't just use your pastors, because guess what? There are 52 weeks in a year. If you did a chapter a week, you're not going to finish the Bible anytime soon because there are a lot of chapters. You've got to be able to read it on your own time, have your own quiet times, go at your own pace. It doesn't have to be a chapter a day. It doesn't have to be you know, 10, 20 verses a day. Just get it done as soon as possible, asking questions along the way. We also see right here that we had this idea of Jesus potentially being tempted to sin. But if Jesus is God, how can he be tempted? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on here, very metaphysical. It's not my favorite thing in the world to talk about because it breaks my brain, but it's something that needs to be said because there's a lot of false teaching about this. Jesus is both 100% man and 100% God. Christian, that's too much. That, that doesn't, that's not how mouth works. Well, guess what? You're working with God. His rules are not ours. Both of those things are true. He is God. He is man. Which means that the human part of him, just like it needs that bread, just like it needs food, has a desire in itself to do what is not right. Except Jesus can stop that from happening because he is not under the curse of sin. But it is still possible for him to be tempted. Once again, there'll be people all over the place who say it's it's not possible. It's like this was the devil just trying something he knew was going to fail. It's like I'm not the most qualified person to address that. There are people who studied it a lot more than me. All I'm saying is that Satan probably wouldn't be wasting his time if it was 100% going to fail on this one is how I would see it. But at the same time, you also see the Satan that Satan knows he's going to lose in the end. It's all up for debate. But what Satan's goal is, is to try to get Jesus to fall. But why, in this passage, what is so wrong about Jesus turning these stones into bread? Why is that a sin? Jesus needs food. Jesus is God. He created everything. Shouldn't he be able to just turn those stones into bread? Well, certainly he could. But to do so at that point in time would be wrong. Jesus was directly challenging himself through this fast. So to use his power in such a way contradicts the purpose of his call to do so, as well as showing his resolve to sympathize with our weaknesses, as we would never be able to transmute stones into bread should we fast in a similar manner. You and I, if we were to fast as long as Jesus did, like some people do during Lent, I'm not one of those people, but I know a lot of people out there do practice Lent, and there's nothing inherently wrong with it. It's just a tradition we have. If we were to do that, we can't, you know, just say, oh, well, I'm 33 days in, Jesus, I, I got to bail. So no, as an example to us, he went through the whole 40 days and did not abuse his power and authority to do so. The stones that were around Jesus then had been purposefully created by God from the very beginning to be stone, and they were not meant for anything else. So for Jesus to abuse his power in this way to satisfy his own needs, is sinful. So we're moving on from there to verses 14 through 21. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. For remember that verse. <laughs> and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We see right here, Jesus is not shy about who he was. There are a lot of people out there who will mistakenly say Jesus never proclaims himself as God. In the context of this verse in Isaiah, it is talking about the anointed one, the Messiah, who is going to come under God's direction to save the world. So by saying these words are being fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the Messiah. So you may get people say, well, he never directed this. I am the Messiah. But he says it over and over again before Abraham was, I am. Continually stuff like this. It is as you have said. People... It's so simple. The man himself says it without saying it all the time. By saying these things, he knows what he's doing. He's putting a death sentence on himself in the eyes of the people if he's not who he says he is, and even if he is who he says he is. Jesus was never shy about who he was. We should not be shy about who we are, and I know that's easy to say, and I say that as someone who is an incredible introvert we've got to step out of our comfort zones and proclaim, I was a sinner. I was someone fighting against God, but he drew me in. I repented of my sins, and now I'm working with him. And what an incredible testimony that is. So we'll continue on to verses 22 through 30. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah sent to none of them, remarkable change from how we started. Remember where I said they they marveled at him? Well, now they're about to throw him to his death. Remember, guys, Jesus was initially received well. We should always remember when we are giving out the gospel, there are going to be people who are attracted to certain parts of it. Everyone wants to live well. Everyone wants to be treated well. Everyone wants to be loved. When people hear that, their ears perk up. It's like, yes, I want that. But when you get into the nitty-gritty, when they seem to be on the verge of converting, let us also remember the gospel itself is something that is offensive to humanity because it tells us we cannot become God and we must submit to him. So opposition is going to naturally arise from that idea because there is no human being born on this planet who was not 100% God as well that is going to be able to just say yes to that off the bat without some struggling inside our hearts. We should also remember we all came from a place where people know who we are and what we've done against them. Even after we came to faith, it's not like we just became perfect after the fact. After I was six years old and I gave my life to Christ, I had done plenty of terrible things to people around me. Guys, people are going to use this. they to say, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, isn't this, you know, Chip and Michelle's son? Didn't he do all these terrible things to his siblings and his friends and to the people around him? Yes, those things happen, except... On Jesus' side, they didn't because he's literally blameless. But for us, they're going to say, what about him? What about her? I know what they've done. It is on public record. And our response should always be when they try to tear us down, we own up to it. We admit the sins that they call us out on having done in the past. And we ask for forgiveness. That is not easy to say. That is not fun to say. But it is what is necessary to say. Because we need to reach these people. And the fewer hurdles we have to jump over to get them to the gospel, the easier our job is for us. And we unfortunately live at a time when Christians try to place as many hurdles as possible to jump over before we even introduce the idea of the gospel of forgiveness. And it just saddens me. But if we realize this fact, we can be better about it. And even if there is hostility to the gospel that remains in their hearts after this part is said, just remember the exact same thing happened to Jesus and he was quite literally perfect, free of sin. That's the reason why he can die and save us all from our own sin. So if it happened to him, who was blameless, the same thing will happen to us who are nowhere near close to perfection. That is you. That is me. Look, I'm the oldest of my siblings. I have abused that authority at times. I have been cruel to my siblings sometimes thinking I was being funny. I have uh, two sisters and a brother, and I've hurt all of them. But there's also been times when we've been playful with each other, and we'll say things just to get a rise out of the other, and we'll fight back, and it's all in good fun. My sister Cassidy is not one of those people who can do that. And I had to learn that just because Connor and Courtney could respond, That didn't mean I could do it with her as well. She holds on to things, and it hurts her immensely when these things are said. She's not as fast when it comes to sniping back after a comment is made, and it hurts her. So I had to learn over many years. This was a very, very gradual process because I'm stupid, and I'm very slow when it comes to the emotions of others. That I can't say the things I say to my brother and sister that I can't, excuse me, I can't say the things I say to them that I can say to her. I have to be more delicate. I have to be more thoughtful. Not because she's weak. Not because she's not as you know great as us, but because she is built differently. And the same is true of all of us. There are people in our lives. We can say certain things around. We can do certain things around. But others can't take it. And that's not their fault. We need to be mindful. And I say that to myself because I have to think about this daily. Even I'm not living in the house anymore, there are still people around me who, if I say the wrong thing, it's going to ruin their day. Be mindful of that. Also in these passages, we get two specific shout-outs to incidents that happen in First and Second Kings. These are during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, these mentioned would be the widow who lived in the region of Sidon and Naaman the Aramean. Naaman was an Aramean general who was very proud, very successful. God strikes him with leprosy and he's forced to go bathe in the Jordan River under a Jewish man's authority to get rid of his leprosy. What Jesus' point here is saying is not only is the fact that these people were Gentiles. And that shows that God's plan has always been to redeem the whole world. He didn't just suddenly make it up on the fly. It's like, well, the Jews aren't listening. Well, I guess I'll go somewhere else. It's like, no, that was always in the books. But also, he went to these people, these individuals, specifically at that point in history because the Jewish people wouldn't believe the words of the prophets. Yet, the Gentiles did. It's the same thing With Jonah, our boy Jonah, I I identify with him way too much for my own good. It's not good that I do because he was told to do something specific. He said no and went in the exact opposite direction. And what happened? God sends a storm after the ship he's on. And the godless heathens on that ship show more grace and love and deference and submission to God than the prophet of God who, as a Jewish man, should know everything, in fact does know everything about what he's supposed to be doing in his relationship to God, yet doesn't do what he's supposed to. Yet them, in their one experience with God, turn away, repent, and give sacrifices to him. God does this over and over again in the Old Testament to show not only that we, as humans, are faithless, but even if one group was selected out of everyone, they would be faithless, and not all of them do this. They have eventually turn to God over time. But the simple fact of the matter is, like I said before, it doesn't matter who God chose because they would have done the exact same things, maybe in different names, maybe in different times, but the exact same things that the Jewish people did. So later on, when we get to Acts and Luke is telling of the story of the apostles going out and preaching to the Gentiles, This is set up for that, and it starts with Jesus because he knows no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So he's going to have to go elsewhere. We need to do the same because there are many people in the Christian church who do not know God. I'm not saying, I'll preface this first. I'm not saying we start an inquisition and then go out And, you know, poll everyone, make sure they say the right things, because all that's going to teach is legalism. All that's going to teach is people, well, I learned how to how to do things correctly as a Christian. I learned how to pass the class. And that is awful. What I am saying is we need to be mindful of what people are saying around us and then asking them, hey, you said this. Well, Scripture says this. Why, Why did you answer it this way when it should be this way? And then see where their answers are coming from. Because there may be someone around us who thinks they're a Christian simply because their dad was a pastor. Simply because they've been raised in a church their entire lives. Or because they think they've prayed a prayer, but they were just doing it to be a part of the group. And rather than actually believing it, they did it to fit in. We need to look out for these because false teaching can spread and harm everyone around us if this happens. Once again, don't start an inquisition. Don't start a crusade. Don't just start kicking people out simply because they're not there with God yet. The church is a place for people who need God and even people who've received him need him. So guys, be aware of that. That may be you listening right now. You may not know if you're secure with God or if you even were ever secure in the first place. That's okay. Okay. Ask questions, find people who can help you with these answers, we are going to love on you, and give you the best possible experience. There is no shame in coming to God 20 years after you thought you did. Because at the end of the day, guess what? You're still in there in eternity with the rest of us. And that's good. So all this to say, we need to be vigilant and make sure we know the truth and follow the truth so that when lies are brought up by people who claim Christ, we can then rebuke them in love. Moving on, we'll be going to verses 31 through 37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogues there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with this, Jesus of Nazareth? This is where we need to have an important distinction made about two different definitions. These being demonic possession versus demonic oppression. Two very, very distinct things. And people have a very bad theology on these because they've been taught a a certain way. And that's just what they believe their entire lives. So what's the difference? Possession means that a person has a demon controlling their actions because God does not dwell within their hearts. And that way, something else can infiltrate it and cause them to be hurt. Demonic oppression means demonic agents are actively working against both saved and unsaved people to get them feeling depressed or physically attacked or what have you. Now, before I go any further... Let me make this clear as well. Demonic possession does not always mean that a person suffering from mental illness is suffering from demonic depression, depression, uh, possession and oppression. Mental illness is something we are finally, finally talking about a lot better than we have in the past. We say, oh, we'll just believe in Jesus and everything will be fine. No, that's not how it works. I've known Jesus since, like I said, I've been six and I've still been hurt time and time again by my own thoughts, by forces in my mind to say, oh, well, you're not good enough. You're never going to get there. You know, those people, they're not actually your friends. They don't care about you. And I know those are irrational. But tell that to my anxiety. That can be used as a form of demonic oppression. But not all Acts of anxiety and depression are demonically oppressed in nature, but they can be. So a lot of people would like to say, well, this is just their way. They didn't understand mental illnesses, and therefore they just said a demon was possessing them. Demons aren't real. I'm here to tell you, they are in quite fact very real, because number one, Jesus speaks of them as if they're real. God speaks of them as if as if they're real. The, The apostles do as well. These aren't some metaphor for mental illness. These are agents of the devil working against all of us. And in fact, now's as good a time as any to tell you my story. When I left college, I was directionless. I had my degree. I had these thoughts. I was applying to all these places And just getting rejected, the classic, oh, we need someone with three to five years of experience. Well, how the heck am I supposed to get three to five years of experience if no one will give me the chance? So I felt worthless. I felt like I was not achieving anything. I was not married like other people around me were. It's like, where am I going with all this? I was about to move away from people I knew because they had to go elsewhere in their lives. So I had to move in with a co-worker. And I was about to do that when one night I had gone to sleep, thankfully, sometime before midnight for once in my life, if I'm remembering correctly. And I remember it distinctly because I had borrowed uh, my friend's Game of Thrones season one DVD, and I had listened to it as I was falling asleep. I woke up after I'd fallen asleep. It was still playing. I could still move. I wasn't paralyzed. I was conscious of everything around me. But when I woke up, under the covers, I felt a presence in that room. And I was terrified. I didn't know what it was. Was it one of my roommates or uh, with someone broken in? But all I knew at that moment was whatever this thing was, it hated me. It was some primal sense of understanding, uh, of a fear of whatever this thing was. I was everything it despised. I did not open my eyes after that. I closed them. I kept myself under the covers like a child pretending, well, maybe if I just close my eyes, it'll go away. By the way, I was about 22, 23 at the time. So it can happen even then that you act like a child. And at that moment, if say I was in my bed, this figure, whatever it was, was by the door That opened into my room. It suddenly teleported. So, how do I know this? I couldn't tell you. I felt its presence there. Then I felt its presence right beside me. Once again, not opening my eyes. And suddenly a blast of cold air surged through my covers directly at me as if those covers didn't exist. And I was freezing. And for those of you who don't know me, most of the people in my life make fun of me all the time because I would go out in the middle of a snowstorm in a t-shirt and basketball shorts because I don't get cold that easily. But it was like I was in the middle of the harshest winter in the world. And I kept i, I, I curled into the covers as best I could to, to try and block it, but nothing worked. And I felt so helpless. And then I realized I'm not getting out of this on my own strength. So I said something to the effect of, Jesus, I can't do this by myself. Please help me. And the moment I said that, whatever this demonic entity was, left. I, I've debated for years, like, why exactly was it there to attack me? Was Because it certainly was wasn't because I was, you know, the best Christian in the world at that time but I think it was because I was about to move over to my new roommate's place and he had just come to faith. And I think whatever this was, knew I was gonna be talking to him, knew that I was gonna be help uh, helping him learn how to be a Christian, learning how to handle himself in the world. And it didn't want me to do it. Once again, I can't say that as an absolute fact. All I know is that I was attacked These are real, and I'm not saying this for clout. I'm not saying this, you know, for a book sale or a book deal or what have you. I'm saying this because it happened, it's real, and we need to discuss it. But I also remember to tell you why that story works as well as it does, that part of my history works as well as it does, is because Scripture says the exact same thing about how demons respond to the name of God, to the name of Jesus. They are afraid. It left because it had no authority over me once God took control, once Jesus took control. I'll be reading from James 2.19. As for our KJV fans, we're reading from there. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou dost well. The devils also believe and tremble. Guys, there is one God. Devils are real. Satan is real, but they tremble at the name of God. We have nothing to fear if our heads are screwed on straight. If we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, they can still attack us. Things are going to hurt. It happened multiple times throughout the lives of the apostles. It's going to happen to us. Maybe you guys aren't literally going to have a demon attack you like what happened to me. I sincerely hope not because that was terrifying. It was not my shining moment, not my proudest moment in my life of curling under the covers like a child, just wishing it wasn't there. But what it taught me, not only is that the supernatural is real, but that God has authority over it. And we have nothing to be afraid of, even when these terrible things happen. So I get my set box there to continue on to verses 38 through 41. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house, this being Simon Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So, here we introduce for the first time in Luke to Peter, to Simon. We find out a couple things about him before he joins Jesus as one of the disciples. He's married, and he's in need of help. This is something, we don't know how bad the fever was. The way Luke describes it, uh, being a physician, it sounds like this was pretty dang bad. I mean, way worse than your ordinary fever would be. Especially in a time without modern medicine. No doubt, it is because of this moment, among some of the others, that makes Peter want to follow Jesus. Jesus went where he was needed. He left people behind who wouldn't listen to him in Nazareth so he could come here. What we also see is Jesus chooses, the word chosen by Luke here is to rebuke the disease attacking Peter's mother-in-law, showcasing Jesus's command over nature, which has dared attack a child of God. And that is how God feels about our illnesses affecting us today, whether they be mental, whether they be physical, whether they be uh, diseases, viruses, bacteria, uh, tapeworms, what have you. We can go to him and ask him to take it away from us. But even if he doesn't, he is still faithful and true. But if we don't ask, why should he help us? Peter asked for help. And what happened? Jesus came. So guys, just remember, no matter what it is, no matter how impossible by human standards it can be, ask God for help, and he will deliver on his time. And deliverance will could mean that person dying. And that's something we have to accept because guess what? Our lives are finite. He didn't have to give us anything at all. But later on in this passage, we see that the demons speak his name and Jesus tells them not to. Why would you not want them to? Well, because they were not who he needed to, to have Out loud, proclaim his name as the true Son of God. Jesus desired for man to do it. Yet these faithless demons cried out the truth before man would do so. (laughs) Just incredible. It's so sad that he has spoken. He has healed people, and yet not the people who are being healed. (laughs) Not the people who see the people being healed. It's the demons who call him the son of God first. That's got to be demoralizing. But also, as we'll see later on, he didn't want to cause people to reclaim him as king, which is what they're going to start doing when he starts performing some of his miracles. Because that's not why he came at this point in time in history. So he silences others to stop this from happening. Jesus doesn't need that kind of publicity. He needs true followers to come to him and then speak on his behalf. Verses 42 to 44, and we'll be ending today. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Often we'll see throughout the Gospels, people clamor for Jesus to stay with them. And as we will see later on, most of this is negative publicity. These are people who are expecting another handout of food after the 5,000 are fed. These are people expecting their illnesses to be healed at their convenience, rather than Jesus doing a mighty work and protecting the lives of his creations. These are people looking for a miracle and saying, oh, that's so cool. Let's see the next magic trick instead of appreciating what God is doing for them. Some of these people, more than likely, did believe. Not as many as should have, after seeing all that. But what Jesus did not do is remain in one place. In fact, before he leaves, Jesus goes off in solitude. And as an introvert, I completely understand. I need my time away from people. I don't think Jesus was an introvert, but I think he's using it as an example to us, like, Get away from everything. Get away from the madness of ministry. Get away from the madness of your family for a bit. Knowing you're going to return. But have some time for yourself. Get right with God. Get something done. So then you can come back into the craziness of life and be enriched. Jesus did it for his ministry. We should do the same. But, like I said, he didn't remain in one place. He could have easily stayed in this one town and increased his following over time. But he didn't want this to be done because there were countless others across Galilee and Judea and beyond who needed to hear his word. They needed to see his face. And later on, the entire world. If Jesus did that by staying in one town, sure, you'd have a a following that's probably fairly large. But what about the other people who read in Scripture? And if he didn't leave to go there... How would they be healed? How would they be touched? How would they know who he is if he did not show up in their lives? As well, likewise, we shouldn't only speak to those around us about Jesus. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk at all to the people around us about Jesus. They should not be the only ones we talk about him. We have been tremendously gifted to live in this modern era of communication that spans the entire globe. This means you and I, we can reach people that never would have been able to hear our voice, even just a couple generations before now. God has blessed us with the technology that he inspired people to make. So we must use that gift appropriately to help deliver the good news. Now, I'm not saying you have to start up your ministry to go out and reach Japan, to go out and reach Saudi Arabia. That may be what God tells you to do. But there are people all across the world who we can talk to. Facebook exists. It's not my favorite thing in the world. But what it allows us to do is to connect with people who have left us from high school, who have left us from college, and so on and so forth, who've had to move elsewhere. And we can say, hey, just want to check up on you. Have you heard about Jesus? It's so simple to do. They may say absolutely not. Well, guess what? You did what you were supposed to do. Think about that as you're moving on in life. Like, how can I use the gifts God has presented around me, not just for my own interests, but for the interests of others? So that's it for Luke 4. Thank you again for joining me. This was incredibly fun. As many times as I kept stuttering and moving on and having to pause recording. In fact, it's one of those things, I don't know if I talked about this before, but I was listening to a podcast the other day, I won't name it to shame them, that reaches hundreds of thousands of people every time it is brought up. And they had someone coughing throughout the entire recording. I'm like, man, I know you can hire an editor to make this good. So I'm not going to be subconscious anymore about just how bad this is. <laughs> so... I know it'd be a lot better if I had an editor, but I don't. So the reality is what reality is, and I can't change that. So, guys, please, if you're led to it, leave us a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. We've actually had, uh, I believe, two five-star – just five stars, not a review left. So I'm incredibly appreciative of whoever did that. It is definitely something that's going to help us along the way, reach more people. Uh, Guys, keep keep up the good work. You can also find me if you're interested – on some roundtable discussions that we have on a whole church podcast. It's run by Joshua and TJ. Great guys, good people. I am also one of the co-hosts of Systematic Ecology. Let's see. What do we just do? We just did an episode uh, that's gonna be in a couple, I think a couple weeks, gonna be on Peter Pan. That was a ton of fun. And we do our what's new segment where we just talk about the recent geeky things that are happening around us. So much fun. Guys checking me out there if you'd like. Also if you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon.com. You can find me under the name of MC Ashley. Contact us here at the Let Nothing Move You Podcast at gmail.com. Email link. We're looking forward to the discussions you have there. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.